It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Nine-year-old Annie Swartz woke up suddenly to the sound of a scream. It was muffled, but the cry sounded like it came from somewhere inside the house. Annie glanced at her clock and saw that it was almost 11.30 p.m. She wasn't supposed to be out of bed so late, but she couldn't get that scream out of her head. She had to investigate. Annie got up and looked out the window. She scanned the dark treetops outlining the winter night sky. Below them in her backyard, she saw a tall figure walking towards the back gate. He was carrying something over his shoulder, some tool with a long handle. Annie tried to make sense of it, but she couldn't figure out why a man would be roaming around the property in the middle of the night. Then, as she continued to search the yard, she gasped. Annie saw something on the ground. It looked like a body, naked, lying in the snow. Annie leapt away from the window. She raced out of her room and flew down the stairs. She threw open the front door, stepped out onto the driveway, but stopped there. She was terrified of whatever was happening in the backyard. She wasn't sure she wanted to run any further. Annie's heart beat faster at a noise behind her. But when she turned around, it was just her big brother, 17-year-old Larry, telling her to come back inside. Annie tried to tell Larry what she had seen, but he wouldn't listen, brushing her off. It was just a dream. Go back to bed. Annie did as she was told, but she knew there was something outside, a tall man and a pale, lifeless body. She never wanted to see either of them again. Hi, 
I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we met Robert and Catherine Swartz. Over the course of 10 years, they adopted three children, Michael, Larry, and Annie. They were strict parents with little patience for disobedience. Friends and neighbors claimed that their disciplinary tactics sometimes crossed the line into abuse. The Swartzes were frustrated by Michael's behavioral problems and disappointed by Larry's poor performance in school. In 1980, the Swartzes kicked Michael out of the house and forced him back into foster care. Afterward, Larry became the sole target of their anger and disapproval. Over the next few years, Larry grew increasingly resentful towards his parents as they put more and more pressure on him to succeed. This week, we'll see how the tension in the Swartz's household finally boiled over into a shocking explosion of violence. We'll also explore how authorities responded to the crime and how it impacted the family for years to come. In January of 1984, 17-year-old Larry Swartz was fed up with his parents, 51-year-old Bob and 43-year-old Kay. He thought they were unreasonable and overly critical. Before he was adopted, Larry had endured neglect and abandonment from his biological mother and several foster parents. This made him all the more sensitive to Bob and Kay's harsh, uncompromising parenting style especially when Bob was abusive to his brother, Michael. Larry later said, the way mom and dad were to Michael got to me. I hated it. They were so mean to him. I think they hated him. And they started treating me like that for no reason. It wasn't fair. On the night of January 16th, 1984, Larry had a brief argument with his father after Larry admitted to accidentally destroying one of Bob's computer disks. Afterward, Larry retreated to his room and fumed. He drank some rum he'd hidden in a Pepsi bottle. At around 11 p.m., he went down into the basement and tossed some dirty clothes into the washer. On his way back to his room, Larry walked through the family room. He found his mother watching television. Kay didn't turn away from the TV as Larry walked past, but she did ask him how his high school semester exams had gone earlier that day. He answered that one of the tests went well, 
but he was worried he'd failed Spanish. According to Larry, Kay said, you probably failed them both. You'll probably fail them all. Bubbling with anger, Larry stared for a moment at the back of his mother's head. Then he noticed a wood splitting maul resting on the floor nearby. The 10 pound, three foot long tool resembled a large ax with a dull blade. In a daze, seeing red, he picked up the maul. Then he slammed it down on Kay's head, fracturing her skull, leaving a gaping wound in the crown of Kay's head. But Larry wasn't finished. Kay's raspy, labored breathing filled his ears. In reality, her breaths were likely very shallow, but in Larry's agitated and possibly intoxicated state, they were deafeningly loud. He was afraid that the noise would wake up his sister, nine-year-old Annie. He had to put a stop to it. Larry spotted some silverware on a small table in front of the TV. He dropped them all and picked up a steak knife. Larry later said, I did not care anymore about anything in the world. I picked up the steak knife, stabbed her and got her around the throat. When I saw her blood, I felt like good in a sense because I finally did something about them yelling at me. I did not feel good because I don't like blood. I had blood on my hands, not much. I started growling like a dog. Then I saw my father standing there. Larry had already stabbed Kay seven times in the throat when Bob entered the room. For a moment, Bob was too shocked by the sight to move. Larry stalked toward him and stabbed him in the chest. Bob yelped, stumbling back into his computer room and slamming the door closed. Larry followed after. Larry heard Bob screaming, but somehow it sounded very far away. Bob was trying to hold the door shut to keep Larry out, but Larry pushed it open. It was so easy as if it weighed nothing. Larry paused at the doorway facing his father. Bob stood in the center of the room. Blood covered his shirt, neck, and hands. Larry wrinkled his nose at the sight. He took a step forward, clenching the knife so tight in his fist. Bob lurched backward, but there was nowhere for him to go. Larry felt something rise in his chest, something terrible, wordless, and wild. He was filled with horror and glee, both at once. He couldn't see any trace of Bob's angry temper now. He could only see fear. Bob was helpless. He couldn't stop Larry, and he knew it. Nobody could. Larry stabbed Bob 17 times, piercing the man's carotid arteries and slashing the major veins in his chest. The wounds were fatal. He was in such a rage-fueled state, Larry was hardly aware of what he was doing. After the fact, he only remembered stabbing Bob twice. At times, Larry felt as if he had floated away and was watching himself from the ceiling. He later told a psychiatrist, my mind never caught up to my body. This may have been consistent with dissociative amnesia, 
Before I continue with Larry's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to the American Psychiatric Association, dissociative symptoms include the experience of detachment or feeling as if one is outside of one's body and loss of memory. Psychiatrists Dominique Bourgeau, Pierre Gangui, and Stephen Floyd Wood have found that perpetrators of violent crimes often claim to experience dissociative episodes during their brutal acts. In a paper published in the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law, the author cited research showing that between 20 and 30% of offenders who committed a violent crime claim amnesia for their offense, while one quarter to two thirds of homicide offenders claim amnesia. The authors also found that individuals with a history of childhood trauma may be particularly vulnerable to dissociative episodes they wrote that dissociation may occur more often in people who did not develop effective coping strategies after stressful experiences in childhood. Given his traumatic childhood, Larry may have been particularly susceptible to developing a dissociative disorder. This could have been the cause of the disruption to his memory and consciousness during the murders. However, once he was finished, he had time to stop and think. He began to panic. He had to get rid of the evidence. He started with his mother. Larry returned to the family room, grabbed Kay, and dragged her outside into the frigid backyard. He stripped off Kay's clothes, leaving a lone sock on her foot. Larry then grabbed the maul and the knife and threw them into the swampy woods beyond the backyard. Once his parents were dead, Larry returned to the house to find his sister Annie awake. She told him she had heard her father screaming. Larry assured her that it was only a dream and told her to go back to bed. The pair went upstairs. Still feeling unsettled, Annie joined Larry in his room where she fell asleep on his beanbag chair. At some point in the night, she woke up to him vomiting on his pillow. Larry again told her to go back to sleep. Then he gathered his pillowcase and the clothing he had been wearing and crept outside to hide them in the woods. The next morning around 7 a.m., Larry called 911 and told the operator that he believed his parents were dead. 1,000 chestnut at 980. Firefighters were the first to respond to the call. They found Larry and Annie waiting in the kitchen in the computer room, they discovered Bob's body. Outside, they spotted Kay's. While paramedics and police officers searched the crime scene, Larry and Annie were ushered to their neighbor's house, Jack and Eileen Smithmeyer. Then they were questioned by detectives. Larry explained that he'd spent the night studying for his exams before going to sleep. He claimed he had no idea how or why his parents were murdered. Then, unprompted, he brought up his older brother, Michael. He told police that Michael was living at a psychiatric hospital in nearby Crownsville, Maryland, but that he might have escaped. He informed the detectives that his parents were terrified of Michael, saying, 
Mom told me she was afraid Michael would come home one day and kill her and Dad. Later, when Annie told police that she had glanced out the window in the middle of the night and seen the outline of a tall man in the yard, Larry chimed in that their brother Michael was six foot four. Hours after murdering his parents, Larry had already come up with a plan to escape suspicion. He was willing to do anything to avoid being caught, even if it meant putting the blame on his own brother. That morning, two detectives drove to the Crownsville Hospital Center, prepared to question their first suspect, Michael Swartz. Up next, police narrow their list of suspects, hoping to catch a killer. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On the morning of January 17th, 1984, the Anne Arundel County Police Department launched a murder investigation into the deaths of Robert and Catherine Swartz of Cape St. Clair, Maryland. They began by interviewing their 17-year-old adopted son, Larry. He claimed he was asleep during the murders, then quickly pointed to a possible suspect, his older brother, 17-year-old Michael. Detectives drove to the Crownsville Hospital Center, where Michael lived to pursue the potential lead. First, they questioned two nurses who worked in Michael's dormitory. Did they know where Michael was the night before? They showed the detectives a log, which included all the patient's names and check marks, noting the times throughout the evening that each patient was accounted for. According to the log, Michael never left the facility. Even so, the detectives took Michael aside to question him. They didn't tell him that his parents were dead. They wanted him to have as little information as possible. If Michael had killed Bob and Kay Swartz, perhaps he would slip up and reveal something only the killer could know. But after a few questions, it became clear that Michael didn't know anything at all. To fully rule him out as a suspect, detectives asked to be locked in Michael's ward to determine how easy it was to escape. They checked every window, but each was secured with a metal screen. Detectives concluded that it would have been impossible for Michael to leave the facility without anyone noticing. After ruling Michael out as a suspect, the police found it suspicious how quickly Larry had pointed a finger at his brother. So they brought both Larry and Annie to the police station to make their official statements. In the meantime, while Larry and Annie were out of the house, officers carefully investigated the crime scene they found a bloody handprint on the patio door leading to the yard. Because both Bob and Kay's hands were clean, police surmised that the handprint probably belonged to the killer. Police also found footprints in the snow that led from the yard onto other neighbors' properties before they disappeared into the woods. Some of these prints appear to have been made by a barefoot and Kay wasn't wearing any shoes. This led investigators to speculate that Kay was perhaps still conscious after she was attacked in the living room. 
she may have fled the backyard and run for nearly a mile into the woods. They suspected that her killer chased her, caught her and dragged her back to the yard, where he smashed her skull with the maul. They also found dozens of footprints in the backyard surrounding Kay's body. The footprints revealed a distinct shoe pattern clearly visible in the snow. When the police looked inside the house, they found a pair of red-stained dockside boat shoes on the floor of the rec room. The pattern on the bottom of the shoes matched the footprints in the snow. Police brought the shoes back to the station to test for traces of blood. The tests came back positive. They then showed the shoes to Annie, asking her who the shoes belonged to. They were Larry's. With the evidence piling up against him, the police positioned Larry as their prime suspect. That afternoon, they asked if he'd be willing to submit to a polygraph test. Larry agreed, but the neighbors who were watching over him, Jack and Eileen Smithmeyer, objected. They felt they had a duty to look out for Larry's interests, so they contacted a lawyer on his behalf. Annapolis attorney Ron Baradell had known the Swartzes for years through their church. He didn't normally practice criminal law, but he felt drawn to the case, given his relationship to the family. Baradell raced to the police station, where he obtained Larry's permission to act as his representative. Then he convinced the police that Larry was too tired and traumatized to take a polygraph test. Larry was released into the custody of the Smithmeyers for the night. A few days later, Bob and Kay's family members gathered for the couple's funeral. One of Larry's cousins noted that he didn't seem upset. In fact, he caught Larry kissing his girlfriend in one of the church hallways. Despite this odd behavior, most of the family had no idea that police considered Larry a suspect. Most of them remembered Michael as the problem child, and several family members expressed their opinion that if anyone in the family were to have killed Bob and Kay, Michael would be the most likely one responsible. Larry encouraged their suspicions. After the funeral, he went out to lunch with some of his relatives. When one of them asked whether Larry thought Michael might be guilty, Larry responded that he was 80% sure that Michael had killed Bob and Kay. But the police didn't buy Larry's allegation. The evidence just didn't point to Michael. Criminal lab technicians had matched Larry's fingerprints to the bloody handprint police had found on the patio door of the Swartz's house. The fingerprints, combined with the shoe prints in the snow, were enough to obtain an arrest warrant. On Tuesday, January 23, 1984, Larry's lawyer, Ron Baradell, called his client into his office. He knew that the police were going to arrest him and he wanted Larry to tell him the whole story before deciding on a course of action. Baradell and his co-counsel prodded Larry about the murders, urging him to come clean. Within minutes, Larry broke down in sobs. He admitted that he'd killed Kay and Bob. He added, without elaborating, he wouldn't stop hitting me. After hearing his story, Baradell convinced Larry to turn himself over to the prosecutor's office to be charged and booked. Baradell offered to drive him that afternoon. 
As Larry sat in the back of his lawyer's car, leaning his head against the window glass, he felt completely drained. He tried to keep his face calm and composed as they drove to the prosecutor's office. He had let his lawyer see him cry, but he was determined not to break down again. He pressed his lips firmly together as the car came to a stop. Outside, he saw police, reporters, and cameras. Larry tried not to look at them. He wouldn't let fear take over. He wouldn't allow his despair to show. Emotions were dangerous. He was afraid to give in to them. Letting out his feelings meant losing control, and Larry knew all too well how dangerous that could be. He would never let that happen again. Larry was taken to the Anne Arundel County Detention Center on charges of first-degree murder. He couldn't afford the $200,000 bail set by the judge, so he remained in jail while his attorney strategized his case. Rumors swirled throughout the community. Some said that Larry had been under the influence of PCP when he murdered his parents. One neighbor even blamed demonic possession. Larry dismissed these explanations, although he couldn't provide any clear rationale for why he'd so thoroughly snapped. Trying to make sense of his violence, he said, I felt mechanical. I was thinking about one thing while doing another. I could appreciate what I was doing was wrong, but I couldn't stop. His only explanation for his eruption was that he felt angry at his mother. He said, she was very sarcastic. I was very mad at her sarcasm. Beyond that, however, he insisted that his parents had done nothing to provoke him. Although he had repeated the phrase, he wouldn't stop hitting me in his initial confession to his lawyers. He later claimed he didn't remember saying it and he refused to discuss what he meant. Since Larry wouldn't open up about Bob and Kay, his lawyers looked further back to Larry's life before his adoption in order to build their defense case. The lawyers reviewed Larry's adoption papers and records from foster care, hoping that the grim details of Larry's childhood would help them understand his mental state on the night of the murders. Ron Baradell hoped to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Over the next year, as Larry awaited trial, his defense attorneys arranged for him to meet with several mental health experts. They subjected Larry to a series of tests and interviews. Three of these experts thought that Larry showed signs associated with schizophrenia and concluded that the teen had experienced a psychotic episode before killing his parents. Larry's background and childhood history seemed to fit these diagnoses. In studying schizophrenia, Many researchers have found a link between childhood abuse and neglect and later onset of schizophrenia among those with a genetic predisposition. Child abuse can also increase an individual's susceptibility to psychosis. In one 2008 paper, psychiatrist Simona A. Stilo, Marta DeForti, and Robin M. Murray wrote, the mechanism by which childhood trauma leads to psychosis is still unclear but it has been suggested that traumatic experiences may result in changes in the function of the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis, which is involved in the stress response. But even with those expert diagnoses, defense attorneys knew it would be difficult to prove Larry was legally insane. 
Before the murders, most everyone who met Larry found him to be polite, soft-spoken, and even-tempered. He never gave anyone the impression that he was experiencing psychosis. And the prosecution hired their own mental health experts to evaluate Larry and combat the defense's assertions. Several of these professionals found evidence that Larry suffered from symptoms of one or more personality disorders, but none concluded that he was experiencing psychosis when he killed Bob and Kay. According to them, Larry was aware enough to know that what he was doing was wrong and therefore could have stopped himself. Larry was interviewed by 10 mental health experts in all, five for the defense and five for the prosecution. All five experts for the prosecution concluded that Larry was legally sane, while four of the five experts for the defense concluded the opposite. With different mental health professionals reaching different conclusions, neither the prosecution nor the defense felt they had an airtight case. Both sides were therefore open to plea negotiations that would help them avoid a trial. Shortly before the case was scheduled to go to trial, the state prosecutor offered Larry a chance to plead guilty to second degree rather than first degree murder. The plea carried a recommended sentence of 12 to 20 years rather than life in prison. On April 18, 1985, 15 months after the murders, 18-year-old Larry appeared before a judge in Annapolis, Maryland to accept the plea offer. Many of Bob and Kay's relatives were furious about the deal. They thought the sentence was too lenient, but Larry's lawyers and even the prosecutors and the judge all seemed to believe that Larry would benefit from psychological treatment rather than a severe punishment. The judge said, this is not a case that really fits in with the standard behavior of a criminal. This is a young man who had a very troubled childhood. The picture that comes through is that of a strict family, at least not a very understanding family. For some reason or another, something happened on the night of January 16 that no one has been able to explain. The real issue is what the court can do to protect society, punish Mr. Swartz for what he has done, and yet rehabilitate him. After the guilty plea, Larry was transferred to the Patuxent Institution, a maximum security facility in Jessup, Maryland. Larry entered the prison psychotherapy program, hopeful that things would finally settle down and that he'd have a chance at rebuilding his life. Unfortunately for the Swartzes, the family's troubles weren't over. While Larry was in prison, his siblings, Annie and Michael, were left to reckon with the trauma of their parents' deaths. Michael, in particular, didn't have the tools to cope in a healthy way. Like Larry, he was tormented by violent impulses he struggled to control. Coming up, the three Swartz children try to move on from their traumatic past. Now, back to the story. In April of 1985, 18-year-old Larry Swartz was sentenced to 12 years in prison for murdering his adoptive parents. He contemplated his future, telling friends that he wanted to take classes and earn a degree in psychology someday. While he seemed optimistic, his siblings Annie and Michael were still reeling from the aftermath of their parents' murder. 
11-year-old Annie was distressed and overwhelmed by the fact that her brother had killed her adoptive parents. One psychologist noticed that she seemed to be in massive denial about the tragedy. When asked, Annie rejected feeling upset about the murders, but she expressed her anxieties in other ways. She fixated on the biological parents who had given her up for adoption, wondering what had happened to them. She also expressed fears for her new guardians, the Smithmeyers, who had taken her in after the murders. After the loss of two sets of parents, she worried something terrible might happen to them also. In June of 1985, Annie's worst fears were confirmed. Kay Swartz's sister and her husband, Helen and James Rodden, petitioned the court for custody of the girl, trying to take her away from the Smithmeyers. But four months later, the Roddens withdrew their petition without an explanation. Annie was permitted to remain with the Smithmeyers, who legally became her permanent guardians. She went on to lead a quiet, anonymous life. Michael Swartz was also deeply distressed in the wake of Bob and Kay's murder. He mourned the fact that he would never have the opportunity to mend his strained relationship with his adoptive parents. He said, I still fight it. It's hard to accept because there's no chance for a reunion now. Grief counselor David Kessler has discussed the complicated feelings that often overwhelm individuals dealing with the death of an abusive or estranged parent. Kessler stated, We believe we only grieve the people we love, but that actually isn't true. My definition of grief is a reflection of a connection we have lost. Sometimes we have to grieve for what never was, for that ideal parent we never had. Therapist Peggy Oliveira has echoed similar sentiments writing, Not only do you grieve the loss of the abuser's life, but often grieve the loss of hope for the relationship to be something different or for the abuser to take responsibility for the abuse and ask for forgiveness. Michael was filled with resentments, but he had no support system to help him work through these feelings. His adoptive parents were dead, his sister had been adopted by another family, and his brother Larry was in prison. It seems that Michael may not have known that Larry attempted to blame the murders on him. The two brothers briefly stayed in touch, but even so, the relationship was strained. Michael visited Larry twice in prison, but Larry said the visits made him feel uncomfortable. He said Michael was too fidgety and that he wouldn't meet Larry's eyes. It made Larry anxious and he took Michael off his list of approved visitors. Entirely cut off from his family, Michael tried to move on. When he turned 18 in March of 1984, he was released from state custody. He bounced from job to job, unable to find stable work. He expressed an interest in joining the army. He said he wanted to become a sniper so that he could learn to kill and get away with it. But Michael's enlistment application was rejected in 1988 likely due to his juvenile record. He got a job as a taxi driver instead. In 1990, he began dating Sue Hilton, a woman twice his age, who called herself both mother and girlfriend to him. Sue was willing to support Michael in going back to school and earning a high school diploma, but Michael couldn't stay out of trouble. 
On July 9, 1990, 24-year-old Michael and two of his friends broke into the home of 57-year-old Austin Bell. The young men fatally stabbed Mr. Bell when he refused to give them any money. Hours later, Michael turned himself in to the police. In November of 1991, Michael was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. He remains incarcerated at the Roxbury Correctional Institution in Hagerstown, Maryland. Larry, meanwhile, quietly carried out his prison sentence. Although he did not actively court attention, his case drew national recognition. In 1989, journalist Leslie Walker published a book about the Swartzes entitled Sudden Fury, A True Story of Adoption and Murder. The book became a national bestseller, leading to unexpected results. One Maryland couple who read the book, Glenn and Cindy Usselton, felt deep sympathy for Larry. Glenn had suffered an abusive childhood. He understood how Larry could have been driven to kill his parents. He'd fought the same impulses towards his own violent father. Glenn and Cindy began writing letters to Larry in prison. Then they began visiting Larry at Patuxent. They became like family to him. With extra support in his life, Larry made strides in prison. He completed his high school equivalency and earned two years of college credits. He also participated in two years of Patuxent's specialized therapy program. According to an article published in the Annapolis Capitol, prison officials felt that Larry had received the maximum benefits from programs there. After completing nine years of his sentence, 26-year-old Larry was eligible for parole. He was released on January 23, 1993. The judge who had issued his sentence wished Larry well, saying, I just hope he can make a good life for himself. I hope people give him the support he needs. His regular prison visitors, the Usseltons, wanted to provide Larry with a safety net to help him adjust to the real world. They decided to formally adopt Larry. The Usseltons' daughter, Amity, who was 16 years old at the time, recounted the adoption in a 2017 essay entitled, It Happened to Me, My Parents Adopted a Murderer. Amity recalled a time not long after Larry's release when NBC aired a TV movie based on his story called A Family Torn Apart, starring Neil Patrick Harris. She described it as surreal to watch the movie with her family while sitting next to the actual murderer on which the movie was based. Amity also wrote about darker moments of the family's transition. She described her father as abusive and her family as dysfunctional. Although her parents seemed to have good intentions in taking Larry in, they, like the Swartzes, struggled with the actual emotional toll of accepting a troubled son into their lives. Amity wrote, the more Larry tried to rejoin the world, to work and hang out with people and date, the more controlling and obsessive my father became. The final blow came when Larry and his girlfriend had a clandestine wedding and informed my parents they were moving to Florida. That was it for my parents. They cut Larry out of the will and disowned him. 28-year-old Larry moved to Florida in early 1995, two years after his release from prison. With that, he was cut off from his second adoptive family. As Larry drove south towards a new life, 
it was difficult to hold back tears. He had spent his whole life waiting for the moment of rejection, preparing to be cast out. But no matter how much he prepared for it, it always hurt when the moment came. He felt lucky that he had moved beyond the rage of his teen years. He no longer worried about losing control or lashing out and hurting anyone, but the grief seemed to sink deeper with each loss. He felt more broken every time a relationship shattered beyond repair. In prison, he thought he'd had a breakthrough, finally learning to love himself. Now he wasn't so sure it meant anything at all. Every time he thought he found love and acceptance, it faded or twisted into something toxic. Larry couldn't trust love. He wasn't sure he could trust anything. Soon after moving to Florida, Larry and his wife had a daughter, but the relationship fell apart and they eventually divorced. He ran into legal problems once more after his truck was impounded for parking in an illegal space. When he broke into the impound lot to retrieve his wallet from the truck, police arrested him. He spent three months in jail. After his time in jail, he had trouble getting back on his feet and spent a few years living on the streets of Orlando, in and out of homeless shelters. However, a friend eventually took him in. He got a job driving a delivery truck. Through his friend, he met his second wife, Christy, a nurse. They married in 2003. After some time, Larry reconciled with the Usseltons. His second adoptive father, Glenn, was interviewed in a 2013 episode of NPR's This American Life. He told interviewers that despite his brutal past, Larry turned out to be one of the better people in the world. As he settled down in a new home with his wife, 37-year-old Larry cultivated ties with neighbors and members of his community. He had a particular rapport with the neighborhood children. He often took them fishing at the neighborhood lake or gave them rides in his truck. But Larry had little time to enjoy his second chance at life. On December 29, 2004, Larry died unexpectedly of a heart attack at the age of 38. It's possible that his death was linked to his time in prison, former inmates have an increased risk of developing heart problems. A study by Dr. Emily A. Yang, an associate professor at Yale School of Medicine, concluded that cardiovascular disease is a leading cause of death among individuals incarcerated, and those recently released have a higher risk of being hospitalized and dying compared with the general population. After Larry's death, Friends both new and old shared affectionate memories of the man. One neighbor said, I wish there were more people like Larry. He was God's gift to life. Larry's former lawyer, Ron Baradell said, it was like losing a son. He and I had developed a fondness. In his final years, Larry seemingly at last found the permanent family he'd been searching for his whole life. Larry's widow, Christy, remarked, he experienced a whole childhood of hurt, but he was accepted and loved for who he was. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. 
You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Mm-hmm.